welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Robin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all your brothers and sisters in spirit. And I know a lot of times it can feel like such a laborious task mentally to sincerely love those who are hateful and unloving to others. But let us stand the flow of love with our own mighty I Am Presence. Because to be unloving and unkind to others brings about more negative harm and devastation to the unloving and hateful individuals far more than it does the unloved, whether we see that or not. For being unloving is a denial on one's part, knowingly or unknowingly of the loving presence of the living God within their mighty I am presence. And an unloving spirit within any of us is always an enemy to the loving spirit of the living God which dwells within all of us and is our life stream. And therefore, the unloving are always worn internally and unsuccessfully with themselves. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light. And y'all be loved. Strength and beauty are the two attractive elements of our nature, but the masculine strength and the feminine beauty are in reality one and the same thing. That which we admire as strength in the man is the same element that fascinates us as beauty in the woman. The difference consists in the way of their manifestation only. When the spirit has gained sufficient power on the outgoing path, and is strong enough to hold the power that is his in eternal potentiality, then beauty appears on the scene and transforms the aggressive forcefulness of the man into the gentle attractiveness of the woman. To be quite exact, beauty is strength on a higher spiral, when strength ripens, it becomes beauty. This is the spiritual aspect of it, that seems to have been voiced by all the sages of antiquity. Even savage man of prehistoric times was subject to the attractions of the physically much weaker female, thereby acknowledging her superiority over his brute force. The law which governs the generation of energy on the inner planes of being, also presides over the evolution of beautiful forms, the source whence strength springs is identical with the origin of all that is pleasing to our sight. Man is by nature the aggressor, the moving factor, whose energy makes the plasticity of the world soul yield her latent treasures. Woman, on the other hand, contains these treasures. She is identical with the world soul, and in her the strength of man becomes transformed into beauty, which is the higher aspect of strength. Right here I must remind you that in every man is concealed the womanly element just as every woman has masculine qualities. In fact, there are such things as womanly men and manly women. Here we are concerned with the spiritual nature, and as regards this, 
It is well for us to bear in mind that the feminine nature is far superior to the masculine both in its sensitivity to the unseen, and in its capacity of sacrifice and devotion to the ideal. I do not wish to be understood as depreciating the mere man. I could not very well do that, but what I want to emphasize is this, that true greatness and nobility of soul are due to those qualities within us which are feminine by nature. It matters not whether the physical body one wears is that of a male or a female, it is the perfection of the spiritual nature that counts. Before man can be redeemed his nature must become feminine. Man stands for positive action, while woman is the symbol of passivity. The idea of power is generally associated with active energy, but it requires a stronger will to refrain from action than to act. Therefore is woman's sphere above that of man, and her kingdom must come before man realizes his true nature. The dissecting and analytical function of the mind is of a masculine character, while the synthesis, the gathering up and consummating, is altogether womanly. This applies to all the realms of nature, to everything under the sun. In the battle of life, while making his pilgrimage through this wilderness of earthly existence, man is like a strong oak, or a trusty, sturdy oaken stem, but woman like a vine clinging in grace and beauty to him. This expression of female tenderness on the physical plane is only an emblem of the true relation on the plane of spirit. There the companionship is free from the vicissitudes of earth and partakes of the divine nature only. The relations between the sexes on the higher planes are in accordance with the heavenly law governing those planes. Those whose good fortune it was to know the pure friendship of a woman on the earth plane have had, even in this life, a foretaste of the heavenly condition. Its effect upon the physical nature is the same as when the sun draws up the muddy water of a stagnant pool by the roadside, and, changing its vibrations, returns it as the gentle life-giving rain, softening the dry earth. Thus is the effect of the sweetness and light emanating from a pure soul in whom passion has been stilled and desire transmuted. It is through this recognition of the spiritual elements within us which are of a feminine nature that the atoms, molecules and particles of the physical body become glorified and healed, and the mind becomes illuminated. The human soul is in possession of the greatest of all divine gifts, the power to heal other souls, mark you, not only bodies, but souls. The gift of healing is in itself a great boon to mankind, but, when to it is added the power to heal the heavy-laden soul of man, then the possessor thereof is indeed a favored mortal whom the gods delight to honor. This spiritual gift of healing can only be exercised by that man or by that woman in whom the mind has been dualized, that is to say, it has become male-female in one. In those in whom this process of mind dualization has been affected, a new life springs up which, compared to the old one, is like light unto darkness. It is here, right here that the redeeming power of the feminine elements in man is seen. At the first birth man is endowed with the earthly mind, but at the second birth he receives the heavenly one. To the twice-born sons and daughters of God, all things are possible. There is a fundamental difference between the atomic elements of the masculine and feminine principles in nature and this causes the difference in the external form of male and female. It is a peculiarity of atoms well known to chemists that their behavior depends upon their arrangement, though their nature is not changed. Thus, the difference in the constitution between a molecule of ozone and a molecule of oxygen is quite imperceptible, but their properties differ widely. Why this should be so is a mystery which is perfectly unfathomable to physical science. The key to this mystery is to be found elsewhere, it lies in the spiritual forces governing nature from within. The power that determines the mode of life and activity of an atom, or a molecule, is beyond the reach of the microscope and the scalpel, it is a spiritual power which acts in accordance with laws not yet known to the scientific world. 
These laws are as beneficent as they are wise, and they invariably make for human well-being. Now if we ascend the scale of creation and examine the workings of these atomic arrangements on the higher planes, we find the same law holds good and that duality of sex and its effects upon the life of the human species is just as much a mystery as it is on the lower planes. You often hear of the new mental type which is emerging from the present one, this new type is to be a dualized mind. The Holy Kabbalah teaches that every thought and emotion is represented structurally in invisible substance, the highest and purest aspirations and emotions consist atomically of bisexual human beings dualized in their mental nature and patterned after the shape of primal man. These forces, however, can only operate through those mortals who are struggling to regain their lost condition of pristine purity by long preparations, severe moral discipline, and self-denial. Those who have given themselves to the service of humanity, consecrating their life, thought and substance to the furtherance of God's kingdom and the doing of God's will on earth, will find that all their old passions and desires, having once been transmuted, will now spring up as powers for good within them. Eliphas Levi, the great Kabbalist, left his testimony to this effect. The strength of his devotion to the light he had keen, he assured his pupils, was in exact ratio to the strength of his former passions, a force of which he had by severe discipline subdued and turned into a servant of the God within. All desire is centrifugal, outgoing, while will, pure spiritual will, is centripetal and attractive. Thus do the feminine qualities in our constitution exercise a redeeming power over our old Adamic nature, and, until man understands this by un arrangement of his internal makeup, and understanding it, strives to awaken and deepen the divine consciousness within himself so as to become continually and increasingly aware of his duality, there is little chance of his transcending the level of ordinary humanity. But, when this miracle has happened and the eyes of the soul have been opened and the torch of faith has been lit, then man becomes more than man, he has established his right to be a ruler of man. Christ, the everlasting symbol of all that is true and good and really great, was of a feminine nature. He only wore the body of a man, but his soul was womanly. His life, his labors, his final sacrifice were just the means to fill the measure before his departure from the Valley of Tears, in which he was to learn all lessons and to suffer all manner of pain, in order that he might be able to help those whose lot in life it was to suffer and to endure. If we wish to benefit by the redeeming power of the feminine elements within us, let us recall the memory of the Lord of Compassion and the agonies of his spiritual crucifixion. It is an ordeal we all must pass through, sooner or later. Let it be sooner. Henceforth all our striving, if we strive at all, will be, that, as the days pass by, we may grow juster and fairer and purer, more kind and more true, more silent, and more humble, and having attained ourselves, to point out the way to the younger souls corning after us. It is the only means we have to repay the blessed masters for their sacrifices, which alone have made our lives worth living. Hidden Treasures of the Ancient Kabbalah, by Elias Kavurts, 1918 Chapter 5 And now we will turn to the Hindu esoteric cosmogony and definition of him who is, and yet is not. From him who is, from this immortal principle which exists in our minds but cannot be perceived by the senses, is born Purusha, the divine male and female, who became Narayana, or the divine spirit moving on the water. Swayamhuva, 
the unknown essence of the Brahmins, is identical with Ensof, the unknown essence of the Kabbalists. As with the latter, the ineffable name could not be pronounced by the Hindus, under the penalty of death. In the ancient primitive trinity of India, that which may be certainly considered as pre-Vedic, the germ which fecundates the mother principle, the mundane egg, or the universal womb, is called Nara, the spirit, or the Holy Ghost, which emanates from the primordial essence. It is like Sephira, the oldest emanation, called the primordial point, and the white head, for it is the point of divine light appearing from within the fathomless and boundless darkness. In Manu it is Nara, or the spirit of God, which moves on Ayana, chaos or place of motion, and is called Narayana, or moving on the waters. In Hermes, the Egyptian, we read, in the beginning of the times there was not in the chaos. But when the verbum, issuing from the void like a colorless smoke, makes its appearance, then this verbum moved on the humid principle. And in Genesis we find, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, chaos. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. In the Kabbalah, the emanation of the primordial passive principle, Sephira, by dividing itself into two parts, active and passive, emits Chakma wisdom and Bina Jehovah, and in conjunction with these two acolytes, which complete the Trinity, becomes the creator of the abstract universe, the physical world being the production of later and still more material powers. In the Hindu cosmogony, Swayamhuva emits Nara and Nari, its bisexual emanation, and dividing its parts into two halves, male and female, these fecundate the mundane egg, within which develops Brahma, or rather Viraj, the creator. The starting point of the Egyptian mythology, says Shampoyan, is a triad, namely, Kanef, Nath, and Tha, and Ammon, the male, the father, Muth, the female and mother, Kones, the son. The ten Sephiroth are copies taken from the ten Prajapatas created by Viraj, called the lords of all beings, and answering to the biblical patriarchs. Justin Martyr explains some of the heresies of the day, but in a very unsatisfactory manner. He shows, however, the identity of all the world religions at their starting points. The first beginning opens invariably with the unknown and passive deity, producing from himself a certain active power or virtue, rational, which is sometimes called wisdom, sometimes the sun, very often God, angel, lord, and logos. The latter is sometimes applied to the very first emanation, but in several systems, it proceeds from the first androgyne or double ray produced at the beginning by the unseen. Philo depicts this wisdom as male and female. But though its first manifestation had a beginning, for it proceeded from Ulam, Ion, Time, the highest of the eons, when emitted from the fathers, it had remained with him before all creations, for it is part of him. Therefore, Philo Judaeus calls Adam Kotman mind, the Ennea of Bythos in the Gnostic system. The mind, let it be named Adam. H.P. Blavatsky Strictly speaking, it is difficult to view the Jewish book of Genesis otherwise than as a chip from the trunk of the mundane tree of universal cosmogony, rendered in oriental allegories. As cycle succeeded cycle, and one nation after another came upon the world stage to play its brief part in the majestic drama of human life, each new people evolved from ancestral traditions its own religion, giving it a local color, and stamping it with its individual characteristics. While each of these religions had its distinguishing traits, by which were there no other archaic vestiges, the physical and psychological status of its creators could be estimated, all preserved a common likeness to one prototype. This parent cult was none other than the primitive wisdom religion. The Israelitish scriptures are no exception. 
their national history, if they can claim any autonomy before the return from Babylon and were anything more than migratory seps of Hindu pariahs, cannot be carried back a day beyond Moses, and if this ex-Egyptian priest must, from theological necessity, be transformed into a Hebrew patriarch, we must insist that the Jewish nation was lifted with that smiling infant out of the bulrushes of Lake Morris. Abraham, their alleged father, belongs to the universal mythology. Most likely he is but one of the numerous aliases of Zeruin, Saturn, the king of the Golden Age, who is also called the Old Man, emblem of time. It is now demonstrated by Assyriologists that in the old Chaldean books Abraham is called Zeruin, or Zerban, meaning one very rich in gold and silver, and a mighty prince. He is also called Zaruan, Zerman, a decrepit old man. The ancient Babylonian legend is that Shathras, Hesasadra of the Tablets, or Shathras, sailed with his ark to Armenia, and his son Sim became supreme king. Pliny says that Sim was called Zeruin, and Sim is Shem. In Hebrew, his name writes MX, Shem, sign. Assyria is held by the ethnologists to be the land of Shem, and Egypt called that of Ham, Shem, in the tenth chapter of Genesis is made the father of all the children of Eber, of Elam, Ulam or Elam, and Asher, Assyria or Assyria. The Nephilim, or fallen men, Gebers, mighty men spoken of in Genesis 5, 4, come from Ulam, men of Shem. Even Ophir, which is evidently to be sought for in the India of the days of Hiram, is made a descendant of Shem. The records are purposely mixed up to make them fit into the frame of the Mosaic Bible. But Genesis, from its first verse down to the last, has not to do with the chosen people, it belongs to the world's history. Its appropriation by the Jewish authors in the days of the so-called restoration of the destroyed books of the Israelites, by Ezra, proves nothing, and, until now, has been self-propped on an alleged divine revelation. It is simply a compilation of the universal legends of the universal humanity. Bunsen says that in the Chaldean tribe immediately connected with Abraham, we find reminiscences of dates disfigured and misunderstood, as genealogies of single men or indications of epics. The Abrahamic recollections go back at least three millennia beyond the grandfather of Jacob. H.P. Blavatsky Beloved ones of the mighty St. Germain's family, we come to make you feel the nearness of the sacred fire's mastery over the physical conditions of this world. The presence of the angelic host, as they pour forth more of the sacred fire in and around each of you, will clear the atmosphere about you and make it more tangible, so far as you are concerned. It will make the presence of the angelic host more tangible to you. It is one thing to just see an ascended being or an angel, and it's another thing to feel the fullness of the power of the sacred fire, not only which they direct, but which they are. Therefore, as we come nearer and nearer into the physical octave of earth, it is to consume as much as possible of the human creation of individuals to whom we come, that they may more readily see us, feel us, and cooperate with us, so that the sacred fire that we bring produces the miracles and the victories in their worlds for which they called. The angelic host has rendered tremendous service down through the ages and always will. But mankind needs to know not only their reality but must understand something of the way the angelic hosts serve life, by bringing into the physical conditions the eternal perfection from the ascended master's octave. 
Now let me assure you that when the cosmic law permits one or more of the angelic hosts to come into your physical octave to render service, it is because a certain amount of sacred fire is drawn there permanently. Whatever gifts the angelic hosts bring into the physical octave, those gifts are the manifestations of the sacred fire, and they are established either in, through, and around the individual who is being helped, or the locality or the condition that is to be changed by their sacred fire love to perfection. It is sometimes almost unbelievable that mankind can sleep in the shadows and the suffering and the limitation of discord, and forget the great cosmic beings that are waiting to help them. Down through the ages all of mankind has been taught, call unto me and I will answer thee. The angelic host is the way and means that life provides to bring that answer into the physical octave of this world. Therefore, those of you who accept the reality of the angelic host, who hold the outer self purified and quiet, can have as much of the power of our sacred fire love as you can possibly use from time to time. When the mighty Saint Germain and others of the ascended host have said to you, spread the violet consuming flame over a condition, pour your love to it, and call for its invincible victory and perfection to manifest, the way that victory and perfection do manifest is because an angel, one or more of the violet consuming flame, comes immediately when you give recognition, and will draw whatever sacred fire is necessary to fulfill your call, so long as it be constructive, so long as it is the work of the Christ, so long as it is the manifestation of the Christ, so long as it is the fulfillment of the great divine plan. Beloved Archangel Michael, There is not one thing of mankind's human creation, or all put together, can stand against the sacred fire power of the angelic host. And I wish to assure you of that tonight so you will not only feel closer to us, but you will feel the power which we wield, projected into destructive conditions to force their annihilation from existence. You must give recognition to the love and the service the angelic host are giving if there is to come into your being and world the freedom which the sacred fire love of the angelic host is to life everywhere. When the angels come, they come to bring freedom. When they come and pour their love and their purity, it is that unascended beings may be free from problems and limitations. When the protecting angels come and blaze the sacred fire around an individual or a condition, that sacred fire is established there for eternity. I want you to accept tonight the fulfillment of every word I tell you, because it's the truth, and only the truth will ever set you free, and when the angelic hosts project the sacred fire of immortal truth, you've got to have freedom. Applause, audience rising. Thank you so much precious ones. Won't you be seated, and please just remain so. How would you feel if someone you loved and who needed your assistance, needed your love, and you had the capacity to give it, and then the individual wouldn't turn around to receive it? How would you feel? Well, now you have a slight idea of what the angelic host have to wait to give, because mankind either does not accept the presence of the angelic host, or does not make the call, or does not believe we are real and can give the help. Tonight, I wish to bring our ascended master feeling and assurance to you, of our presence with you, and of the power of the sacred fire, which is our realm of existence, to come in and around you and render the service which only the angelic host can give. We have gifts unbelievable to unascended mankind. We have invincible, immortal cosmic power to wield, and I assure you, the love of the angelic host is not understood by mankind in this world. Very little comprehension is in the human intellect or in the feeling of how intense is the sacred fire love of the angelic host. Therefore, tonight we are taking away a certain vibratory action in the atmosphere about you and in your emotional bodies. We are taking it away because it is a veil between your physical sight and our visible, tangible presence. Now it becomes your privilege to call our visible, 
tangible presence and our miracle manifestations of the sacred fire in and around yourselves, and into conditions in the physical world, to produce ascended master victory, to produce the angelic host's almighty protection, and to hold the divine plan made manifest, fulfilled in the physical octave, and protected against any human creation. Beloved Archangel Michael, Thank you.